The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. You're listening to The Nonprofit Hour on xray.fm. The show is brought to us by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. I'm Henry Leisha. On today's show, we will learn about two organizations that help educate the public in order to strengthen local communities and encourage future leaders to help improve our world. Later in the show, we will hear from Eric Vines, the executive director of the World Forestry Center. Since it was founded 50 years ago, the World Forestry Center has helped improve our understanding of sustainable management by educating the general public and convening global leaders and practitioners of forestry to advance research. But first, we will speak to Lizzie Martinez, the Director of Development and Communications for Latino Network. In 1996, a group of community leaders created Latino Network to address the lack of resources devoted to Portland's growing Latino community. Since then, the group has become an educational resource to help Latino youth and families reach their full potential and meaningfully engage with their communities. For more on Latino Network, we turn to our host, Phil Bussey. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. We are coming to you from our just almost finished our studio in the bottom of the Falcon Art Building. And I am joined in the studio by Liz, Lizzie Martinez, who is the Development and Communication Director for the Latino Network. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for inviting me here today. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I want to start. I mean, Latino Network, you guys have a very broad mission. You were founded in 1996. You're 20-plus years old now. Um, what has changed in the mission or in the uh, people who are you, you are working with? Sure. Well, I think since the 1990s when we were founded, um, we've really seen a population boom of the Latino population here in Multnomah County. Um, in the early 1990s, we really started to see people immigrating to Oregon. Um, and as that population grew, we started to see a need for more services. So our mission has not changed. We have always existed to be here as advocates for our community, um, but we have continued to add direct services as well to that mission to work on education and leadership and family stability skills as well. That's a lot to pick apart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's, let's go through some of it. So, I mean, some of the problems you're trying to solve, and it's not all problems you're trying to solve. There's uh, uh, um, positive issues as well, but we'll start with some of the problems. Low achievement scores. Um, youth violence, uh, high dropout rates. Is that sort of the, the, the big three? Sure. I think at Latino Network, we're always working to figure out how to reframe those problems. So I think we often hear about the problems of the Latino community, and um, we're working hard to point out that, in fact, it's often the systems that are failing our youth and our families. So to take one of those, I think the achievement gap is pretty widely recognized for leaving black and brown students behind. Um, and in a lot of ways, that's not the youth who are failing, but it's the school districts themselves or the schools who are just not able to, to quite be able to meet their needs. So we work closely with school districts and with schools to be able to try to change those systems. Yeah. And can you can you paint me a picture of, of how that works? Um, you guys are a nonprofit, and, but you have... Uh, a, a, a hotline to the Portland Public Schools <laughs> that you can pick up and say, we need more of this? Or how, how does that actually work? Sure. So I think it works in two ways. I think the first way is direct services. So we do provide after-school enrichment courses, both for early childhood and K-12, with a special focus on college prep. So making sure our students are, are ready to graduate high school and prepared to go on to career. Um, and the second way is really through advocacy. So we work closely. PPS is absolutely a partner of ours, as well as other school districts in Multnomah County. And we work closely with them to figure out ways um, in which maybe Latino students are getting left behind and ways in which we can change that. Um, often that involves bringing out parents and bringing out community members to school board meetings to be able to give testimony um, or to be able to have meetings with principals um, to work on the problem, this, solving these problems collaboratively. Now, is your job getting easier? And, and, and let, me, let me try to explain that a little bit. So 
there there has been a population boom um, from immigrants and Latino uh, uh, population, and I would think that as you move into second and third generation, like yourself, mm-hmm. that there are uh, more economically established families, communities, leaders, and that would seem to make your job easier. Yes and no. So certainly I think uh, Latinos have a long history in Oregon. They didn't just start coming in the 1900s. You know, Latinos have been here since the 1500s um, or a little bit before. So we certainly have families who are very well established. Um, I think our my uh, executive director, Carmen Rubio, is a great example of that. The Rubio family is uh, very well recognized in Hillsboro um, and Washington County area for their leadership and for how long that they have been there. Um, so we do have really thriving professional Latino middle class. And thanks for bringing that up, because I think that's often not recognized by generally by the media or by people um, that we have plenty of Latino lawyers and Latino doctors. And, you know, we do have Latino legislators. It's been wonderful to see them get elected this year. Um, but we still definitely do have problems and we still face a lot of disparities. And and how how do you... Do you find that that uh, that middle class, that professional class, do you are you able to tap into that in terms of mentors, in terms of part of your job funding? Absolutely. I think the Latino mentality, there's a huge part of that community that's about giving back and it's really sort of baked into our culture. And so we often hear from people that they want to know how to give back if they're no longer in need of some of our more direct services. Um, being able to give back, yes, in funding, but also in, in many other ways. We've seen a huge turnout for volunteers who want to be able to come give back and talk to high school students. Um, I think our board of directors is a great example. It's a majority Latino board, and there's some incredible stories of people who are professional professional class and who are donating their time back to help our organization. Lizzie Martinez is the Development and Communication Director for Latino Network. How about a song selection to get us going? Uh, so uh, we picked the song uh, song by a local Portland artist, Edna Vasquez. She actually worked for us a couple years ago, and she is a renowned mariachi singer and actually uh, worked with us this summer on the Rose Parade when we had a float for Latino Network. So Fantastic. This is the Nonprofit Hour. I'm Phil Bussey. I'm talking to Lizzie Martinez, the Development and Communication Director for Latino Network. A lot of, or a lot of what you do philosophically is to develop leadership. And is there a working definition that the Latino Network has for leadership? Certainly in the news lately, and with the switchover at the uh, at the White House, there's been a, a certain amount of focus on types of leadership. Is, is there a working definition that Latino Network has that you, that you try to apply? It's a broad question. I think for us, leadership really goes back to the community. And so that idea of community leadership is one that is resonant with both our culture and our history and our current modern day reality. And that's a leadership that listens to the community, that doesn't come in and demand or or uh, mandate what needs to be done, but says, what do you need and how can we accomplish that together? So a really collaborative leadership to be able to solve problems together. And I would assume that 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 plays into then the leadership style and the work environment at Latino Network. Absolutely. I think um, Latino Network is really a wonderful place to work 
And I'm sure everyone says that about their workplace. Um, but it's uh, really not everybody. <laughs> it's incredibly open and welcoming. Um, the majority of our staff do identify as Latino or Latina, about 80 percent. But within that, I think we're a great example of the diversity. You know, the word Latino often gets thrown around as if we were this monolithic bunch. But there is a huge amount of diversity on our staff. We have people from Mexico, Colombia, Peru, Cuba, Puerto Rico. Um, we have people who are first generation immigrants who came over themselves as children or adults. And we have people that have been here for generations. So it's an incredible place to work, uh, just diversity of wisdom and opinion and experience. I want to focus on one of your, you guys have a super, real superstar staff. Right? Let's focus <laughs> on your executive director, Carmen, Carmen Rubio. Now she has obviously uh, worked in the county and in city hall. Um, what, can you talk to about her leadership style and, and how she has gone from governmental entity to, to running a nonprofit and, and some of the virtues that you see? I think when Carmen Rubio came into the organization in 2009, um, she was really given a big task. And I think her experience from the county allowed her to see things in a different way. Um, coming to a nonprofit where she had seen the other side of the county and the city and how they do business. And for us, that's been a real benefit to be able to increase our our partnerships with the city of Portland, with Multnomah County and with uh, with the school district. Um, she has just done an incredible job of building and maintaining those relationships and really creating a collaborative partnership. I think it's interesting, though, to go from uh, a, a municipal uh, work environment and into a nonprofit that you're, she's at the helm of. And that's certainly, have you seen her grow into a, 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 some more autonomy uh, and freedom in terms of decision making? <laughs> well, I haven't been there since she started. So I started in Latino Network about 2014. Um, so I can't comment on before that. But I certainly have seen her build an organization that is thriving. Um, and her leadership and her vision have really been able to take us from a staff when she came on of about five people to about 105 people. So that's definitely real leadership to be able to shepherd an organization that way. Yeah, that's that's huge growth. <laughs> and there, there, there are dot coms that would uh, that would that would envy that kind of growth. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit also about, about your background and then how that fits into your job at the Latino Network. Your grandfather immigrated from Mexico. Yes, he did. So on my mom's side, uh, my grandparents came over with the Bracero program, which was a program that gave Mexicans and people from other countries a chance to come and work here legally, which was a, a real incredible opportunity for my family. My mom emigrated here when she was about three years old, um, and they settled in Salt Lake City, Utah. On my dad's side, um, we've actually been in America since the 1600s. Um, so we are one of those families where they said we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. So they emigrated from Spain in the 1600s and were primarily sheep herders in the New, New Mexico area for hundreds of hundreds of years and woke up one day to find that they were no longer Mexican but American. <laughs> and and there's interesting when when someone's personal life becomes uh, affected by the global politics, Absolutely. which is which is certainly on people's minds right now. Um, how much does that does your family history uh, then play into how you relate to first generation immigrants? I think there are certainly differences between the generations, but I think what we have in common is much greater in that. That connection to roots and our culture and our heritage, I think, um, particularly on my mom's side, we always we ate Mexican food and and we listened to Mexican music and we really had that connection to our heritage. And it's the same things I see in our first generation families of how do we hold on to that um, when we're besieged by American culture and and finding that balance in being a bicultural person is the same things that our immigrant families are struggling with today. Yeah. And, and is that something that Latino Network works with when you're working with with teens who are probably at that most vulnerable age <laughs> of wanting to assimilate, but also uh, wondering how much of their parents and grandparents' customs to accept and reject. Is that something that you coach the teens through? Absolutely. I think one of the strengths of Latino Network is that, as I mentioned, most of our staff are Latino, and so they've been there, and they've been through those challenges themselves. So they're able to really counsel our youth in our program and be a role model for how you can do it successfully and and really let them know that you don't have to choose. You don't have to pick whether you're American or Mexican-American or Cuban, that 
that you can be both of those things and, and be able to show them that way forward. And 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 you have uh, you've you've gone out into the world, as it were, and you did you went to D.C. and did your graduate work there, correct? Yes, correct. I got a master's at American University. That's a wonderful school. It is. I really enjoyed going there. And and then returned here to Portland to work. What did you, how can you compare those cities? Or when you came back to Portland, what did you feel like you were bringing back? Or what, what fresh eyes were you looking at Portland and in particular uh, Latino opportunities here? I think it was a wonderful opportunity to be able to live in Washington, D.C. It, it's such a vibrant city. And especially as a young professional, it was just incredible opportunities to meet uh, people, you know, I always say every every big author comes through, every big celebrity, every big music star. So while I was there, I had a chance to hear uh, Sonia Sotomayor, one of the Supreme Court justices, speak, which was just an incredible experience for me. Um, so when I thought about coming back to Portland, I really thought about how do I take this experience that I've had in Washington, D.C. and come back to a place that has its own rich history and culture and be able to apply those lessons I've learned in nonprofits here locally to do fundraising. And, and I mean, is there the sense of going to the big city and coming back to a medium city? Uh, is DC, did you feel like D.C. has some more sophistication in some of the these relationships? Or did you come back and say, oh, yeah, no, Portland's, Portland is cutting edge? Yeah, it's hard to compare Portland and D.C. I think they're such different, such different cities. Um, D.C. is such an East Coast city, right? It's very much the stereotype of people walking fast and people looking out for themselves. Um, and Portland is a lot more laid back. Um, I often joke that when I worked in Washington, D.C., I worked as part of a coalition and uh, we were all a mile from each other in our offices, and yet we had weekly phone calls every week. We never went and visited each other. And I came out to Portland, and everybody wanted to meet me in person. My first, my first six months. Oh, let's go to coffee. And so I think that relationship um, is just so much more important here in Portland. That face-to-face time. And I would imagine that plays out. Obviously, I mean, Latino network underscore the word there, network. Uh, that that certainly plays out in the function of your organization. Absolutely, I think we're really focused on getting out into the community and not sitting behind our desks on any given day. I think when you come in, come into the office, you'll often see more empty desks. And that's because our staff are out there at the schools and in people's homes and at community centers um, and really doing the work out there because we can't we can't do our best work in front of a computer. One more question about you and then we can switch back to the the organization. (laughs) You were a member of the inaugural class, the Rising Leaders uh, through Social Venture Partners. In Portland. What, what, what is that? Yeah, that was a really great expen- experience. Social Venture Partners Portland is part of a global organization that uh, works to cultivate philanthropists around a cause. And here in Portland, we have a pretty incredible organization led by uh, Mark Holloway, and they have focused on the uh, Ready for Kindergarten initiative and really focused on how do we get our kids ready for kindergarten and acknowledging that all too often, Latino students start out and African-American students start out behind already in kindergarten. And we know that our, their parents value education. So how do we how do we solve that? And we have an early childhood education program. And so we connected with SVP about five years ago um, and been an investee. As part of that, I got a chance to participate in their Rising Leaders program, which is just in a really incredible group of people that got together a cross-section from government, nonprofit, and business to talk about what does philanthropy mean? What does it mean to be a leader here in Portland? And how do we put all of our values to good work and into action? Do you have a, a, a catchphrase or a, a pithy <laughs> takeaway that you, that, that, from that if, if you had to put it on a bumper sticker? Hmm. I think the biggest thing I took away was that you have to take action. Right. It's great to sit and think and talk about these problems. And we certainly did that. But they really encouraged us to think about put your money where your mouth is. Um, And I came out of that and really thought about I don't have a ton of money myself, but how am I donating to nonprofits that invest in issues that I care about and thinking about philanthropy from that perspective? This is the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. We are talking to Lizzie Martinez, the Development and Communication Director for Latino Network. Uh, you were talking a little bit about the uh, Ready for Kindergarten program. I'm slur- sorry if I didn't get the exact language on that. Why are why are you pr- finding a problem there? Why why is there a cultural difference or opportunity in terms of preparing uh, four and five year olds for kindergarten? I think for some of it, especially for first generation immigrants, it's just a matter of a different system. Uh, for a lot of our families who are from primarily from Mexico. 
the education system in Mexico is uh, very school centric. You send your kids to school and the teachers do everything. You are not supposed to intervene. You're not supposed to, you know, if you, there's often stories we hear from people who grew up in Mexico that say if they got in trouble at school and they came home, their parents said, well, you did something wrong, right? The teacher is always right. And so these families come to America and our system is very different from that. Our system asks parents to be involved. It asks them um, to go in and meet with the principal, to go meet with the teacher and to do a lot of work at home as well. And, you know, it's not a commentary on which system is better. It's just a matter of they're very different. So we work with families to help them understand the system and to help them, especially if they perhaps didn't don't speak English very well, to have the confidence to be able to go in and say, even though I am not a fluent English speaker, I still can ask the principal for a meeting about my child's progress or I can go in and volunteer even if I'm not a fluent English speaker. And I have a place in this school and it's really about helping them find that space and that place in their schools. Yeah, and, and, and certainly how a student starts uh, the, the primary school is indicative often of the success throughout. Absolutely. Has the program been in place long enough to have any uh, empirical or any even uh uh, qualitative um, information about its successes. Absolutely. So the program's name is Juntos Aprendemos, which means Together We Learn. And it was founded in 2000, um, 2000, I believe, was the first year. So it's been around about 17 years. So it's our longest standing program. So for really the first high school graduates would be Yeah, and we actually have a couple kids who are in our college prep program now who did Juntos in the first few years, which is incredible experience. And we are working on a project right now with the school districts to see how those kids are doing, which is really exciting. Um, but I think we see incredible gains every year. About 90% of our kids come through at the end of that program and are ready for kindergarten. So they know their numbers. They know how to hold a book. They know their letters. Um, and even more incredible, I think one of the things that surprised us was how much their parents have learned and grow and how that takes on a new, a new life for them in the sense that they are able to transfer those skills to other kids they have who are older and to other parts of their life. So that's been really incredible to see. Absolutely. And 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 can you can you give me maybe one specific success story? I'd love to hear one. Sure. Um, I think a great example is I just heard this story the other day during a during a meeting of a family who had a child who was in uh, four years old and was in our Juntos Aprendemos program and was doing well and. Um, the mother had heard about it through another friend, which is the word of mouth is our number one recruiting method from people saying this is a great program. Um, she took her child to kindergarten and the teacher uh, learned that they were a Spanish speaking family and met with them and said, well, I can already tell your child's going to need um, to be held back a year. You know, he's a he just turned five. So he's really right on the cusp there. Um, the mother said, well, he was in this program. Juntos aprendemos. And the teacher said, I've never heard of that. And I can tell your child's going to need to be held back. And so the teacher, the mom was sort of a little bit intimidated. And about three months later, she went in for a parent teacher conference. And the teacher said, I was totally wrong. Your child is 100% ready for kindergarten. I've been so impressed at how he knows how to read. He's one of the best students in the class. Um, tell me more about this program that your child was in. And I think those are the kinds of successes we see when teachers get to know our program. Um, they're some of our biggest proponents they love when they get kids in the class who've been through the program because they know they know how to um, know how to thrive in that setting and and how, how that's how maybe some of the teachers are finding out about you how are families finding out about you how do you get the word out there how is this through word of mouth is this through marketing schemes <laughs> um, we have an incredibly dedicated and amazing team um, we use the uh, popular education model, which if you're not familiar with that, is all about uh, empowering people who do the work at the grassroots level to be the teachers. So all of the teachers in our program actually are parents themselves who have been through the program and graduated. And they come back as volunteers and then teachers in training and then they get hired on as teachers. So it's an incredible model. And they go out every year and just do grassroots outreach. They We go to community fairs. We go to festivals. They go to apartment buildings where there's large populations of Latinos and they knock on doors and leave flyers and they follow up. So it's just an incredible amount of, of getting the word out face to face. As we talked about, those relationships are uh, really important here in Portland and in the Latino community as well. 
You guys are incredibly active. Um, thank you for all the work that you do. Lizzie Martinez is the Development and Communication Director for Latino Network. One more song to take us out. Uh, so this comes from Esperanza Spalding, who um, was recommended to me by uh, some of the staff at Latino Network as a Portland-based cellist um, who has some amazing songs. And I believe she played at one of the Obama inaugurations. Oh, see? You're teaching me something I don't know. <laughs> Let's take a listen. <laughs> This show is made possible with generous support from Chinookbook, whose mobile app rewards your sustainable lifestyle choices with sweet savings at hundreds of neighborhood businesses near you. Use it for tonight's dinner or your next adventure. Download the app free at chinookbook.com. This summer, you did something different. What if you worked with people you admired in a city that inspired you, making something that you were proud of? The Media Institute for Social Change is looking for students like you to be a part of their summer documentary program in Portland, Oregon. As a student, you'll create original audio and video pieces about issues that you care about. You'll meet and learn from media professionals whose work is aimed at social justice. You'll immerse yourself in Portland, a city that will serve as your hands-on media-making laboratory. Sound like your type of summer? Apply today at mediamakingchange.org. Applications for the 2017 Summer Documentary Program are accepted on a rolling basis until Friday, April 7th. Live in Portland and want to support our emerging media producers? Why not host one of our students this summer? Email rose at mediamakingchange.org with questions about becoming a homestay host. It's Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. I am joining the studio today. Uh, our new studio that the Rebuilding Center has put together for us. Thank you very much, Rebuilding Center. I'm joining the studio, Eric Vines, Executive Director for the World Forestry Center. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And I have to be careful because there's the World Forestry Center and then part of you is the World Forestry Institute. Correct, yes. We'll, we'll talk about those differences in a little bit. So, sustain, it was established in 1966 about sustainable foresting. That seems to be a much more dramatic uh, mission back then. Is that is that right? I would imagine that the mission has changed over the last 50-some years. Uh, yes, that's true. It has changed. I think when we originally started, I mean, you could actually take the roots back to 1905 with the Lewis and Clark Exposition when uh, they built a giant log cabin. It was almost the size of the Parthenon in Greece. And they, you know, built it to try and showcase this industry that built the state. I mean, this was a this was a major player. Most of the famous names and buildings that you recognize in Portland, a lot of the streets and the bridges were all, you know, if you trace their roots back, it goes back to the timber industry. And that building um, was on uh, Vaughn Street. It burned in 1964, and the city leaders decided to rebuild, and they re relocated to Washington Park, and so built the Forestry Center there. At the time, it was called the Western Forestry Center. Uh, the museum was set up in 1971, and really the intention was to help people understand uh, how forests and wood products and the wood products industry related to their lives. And so it showcased sawmills and paper processing and, and timber harvesting. So it was, it was really designed to help the public connect to this industry that had been so formative in Oregon's creation. And I, I, I would think that's a tricky relationship, though, because at, at, during the 50s, 60s, uh, the mentality really was celebrating forest, forestry and lumber companies. 
that changed, obviously, especially in the first decade of the World Forestry Center. I mean, that the 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 lumber industry became maligned uh, yes. to some for some people. Mm-hmm. How yeah. did that relationship change from showcasing to maybe? Uh, trying to steer the lumber industry or the idea of forestry in a different direction? Well, I think the, the the challenge that the timber industry has faced is, you know, a sense that they were over-extracting. They're taking too much or cutting the really big, important trees. And I think in the early days, if you look back to the 20s and 30s, um, it was there was the sense that the forests were unlimited. And we realized in the 70s, 80s, you know, that that wasn't the case. The timber industry changed its practices dramatically. Um, There was a huge summit in 1992 when Bill Clinton and Al Gore came to town um, pledging to help put an end to the timber wars that had existed up to that point. And the result of that was a Forest Practices Act, which, you know, made sure that anytime any trees were cut, you know, you had two to three trees that were replanted. And so we actually have, in the last 20 to 30 years, um, we have more volume of timber and more trees on the ground than we have had since the 1930s. I mean, it's been a success story from that standpoint. Um, so it has been, there has been a big change, both in how the, the industry practices, and also I think in the perceptions with the public and the environmental community that realizes that for forests to continue to exist, the threat is not... Um, cutting trees. The threat is conversion into something else, um, turning it into, you know, nothing wrong with agriculture, but that's where most of our timberland is gone is it's been turned into farmland or vineyards or housing developments or something else. And so um, what we have tried to help people understand is that for forests to continue to exist, they have to be remain of value to a community. And often that means economic value. And so some level of harvesting provides our wood that we use in our houses and our paper that we use in our books and all those, you know, different things that trees provide to us. And as long as we're replanting them and regrowing them um, and not cutting at a rate faster than we can regrow, then that's a almost a perpetual um, sustainable solution to a lot of the challenges that we face now. And and explain to me what, what, what control is, do you think of the World Forestry Center then as are you policy advisors? Are you a think tank? Are you how how do you fit into some of this policy making both at the state and then the federal level? Right. Yeah, we don't do too much in the way of direct advocacy, but what we do offer is a place for people to come together from all sides to have conversations that are difficult. I mean, this the forestry is a very complex um, it's a complex business and it's a complex issue. I mean, if you think about it, it's almost crazy. You know, you're planting, a, you're plant, if you're thinking of as a farm, you're planting trees that you might get to harvest in 60 years. And in the meantime, you can have windstorms or ice storms or bug infestations or changes in temperature or droughts or forest fires or changes in regulations. And you may never get to actually take back the value that you've put into growing and nurturing those trees over that 60-year time period. So it's kind of a nutty business when you think about it. Um so, you know, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of misunderstanding, but there's also a lot of complexity that it's hard for people to kind of digest and wrap their heads around. And so what we do is we provide a place for people to talk about these issues, whether it's relating to climate change in forests or water security in forests or soil. I mean, all of it kind of comes together and um there isn't a single person on the planet that isn't affected by the health of our world's forests and we think that's an important message. Does your job become a little bit more difficult in these upcoming four years? Have you? Maybe. I mean, it, it, this the needs are still going to exist, and the you know there's a lot of talk about whether um, there will be changes to our federal forest management, um, which is good for some and bad for others. I mean, those private timberland owners who own forests, um, having a whole bunch of new trees on the market doesn't help them. You know, it creates it lowers the prices for the trees that they have. And for those who are running sawmills, then they would welcome to have a new supply of of trees and timber. But we depend heavily on exports. I mean, we don't use all the trees that we grow in the Northwest. A lot of them go to Asian countries. And so to the degree that exports are curtailed, that would really hurt um, those folks who have been growing trees um, in the Northwest and California and Canada, too. And and, um, part of this may also be, talk talk to me about the, the WFI fellowships. Yes. What are those? Who are they? What do they do? 
So the World Forest Institute was started a little bit over 20 years ago, and the intent with that was to recognize that forestry is not a, you know, it's not, it, certainly it's a regional business, but it's a national and international um, practice. And we are affected by what happens in other countries when it comes to the, you know, forest, forest economy. Um, so we started to invite foresters and forest researchers from other countries to come here and to learn and understand how we do things. Because by comparison, the United States does stuff really well. I mean, our uh, commitment to the environment, our commitment to ecology is, um, is top-notch in the world. And so a lot of countries uh, wanted to learn how we were uh, putting our policies in place, how we were actually on the ground exercising um, forest management. And so we invited them here to learn, to exchange with each other, and then go back to their home countries and to help put those practices in place in their, other, in their countries. And so we've had more than 300 people come through that program um, over the last 20 years from over 40 countries. And it's a, it's a remarkable group that comes. I mean, really high-level professionals, some of the top in their field. And uh, they spend six months here. Um, they tour around. They visit, um, you know, all, a whole range of forest product sites from, you know, sawmills to timber plantations to the essences that you can extract from wood. I mean, there's so many things that we get from wood products. It's really, it kind of blows your mind when you start to look into it. That was founded by Harry Merlot, and he was the CEO of Louisiana Pacific. And I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I think that that an, an, a knee-jerk response can be to a major lumber corporation. Like, what what interest did he have in preservation or in, in what was his interest and what was his motivation to found this, the Institute? Harry was really passionate about this program. He just passed away this last fall. And um, yeah, very committed. He actually was, um, he, he would visit us every week to visit, well, not every week, but at least a couple times a month to come visit these fellows while they were present. He would invite them out to his ranch in Eastern Oregon. And what he found is that they brought a lot of really interesting perspective and knowledge that even though he had grown up as a lumberman, growing this huge corporation, um, he would learn from them. And he just delighted in the enthusiasm and the energy and the knowledge that they brought. Um, and he did business on a world stage. I mean, he a lot of his greatest accomplishments came from um, technologies and ideas that were from other countries. Um, Germany, you know, created some of the manufacturing equipment that allowed plywood. And um, in, his, in his case, the invention of... Um, uh, the oriented strand board, which is what Harry made his fortune on and grew Louisiana Pacific shareholders fortune on, um, that technology was co-developed with uh, Dieter Simpelkamp in Germany. And so he saw this as really a way to make sure that we were paying attention to all the things that were happening around the world um, in forestry and trying to, you know, utilize best practices that others would develop. Eric Vines is the executive director for World Forestry Center. Eric, how about a music break? Song selection? Uh, how about James Brown? Get up off that thing. All right, let's get things moving. James Brown, this is the Nonprofit Hour. We are talking to Eric Vines, who's executive director for the World Forestry Center. I want to talk a little bit just about you, but do you, do you have a favorite tree? Oh, great question. Um, you know, the standard answer to that question in the Northwest is the Douglas fir because it's ubiquitous. I mean, it's the it's what makes up most of the trees. But 
I have to say that I am uh, I am partial to the uh, vine maples, how beautiful they are. They don't have a lot of lumber value, but they're just um, beautiful trees, and we have several in our yard, so that might be my favorite. I'm also wondering about your last name. I mean, so, some people think, you know, your last name maybe Dustin's what what <laughs> field you go into. Right. Uh, you know, I, I actually don't have a great sense of origin for, for Vines as a last name. But, yes, it does seem sort of relevant, although Vines tend to be um, sort of the – they can destroy trees as much as they can. You know, they are woody plants, but they're not necessarily uh, very valuable in the forest. So, I don't know. It might be more of a horticultural uh, name than a forestry name. And and you grew up in Spokane area, right? How did you first get involved in being outdoors, being in the forest? Uh, what what was the first hook for you into this field? Yeah, so I actually was born in Colorado, and my family would take weekly, uh, almost every weekend, we go camping in uh, the mountains of Colorado. And there's a picture of me as a three year old in a backpack fishing out of you know with my father. Um, so I was very comfortable in the woods. I didn't, I don't know that I was destined to go into forestry. In fact, you know, I'm a, a business major. Um, I studied physics in undergraduate school. So it wasn't a logical or an obvious path necessarily. But my focus professionally has always been on organizational health and how do you help organizations be successful. And I think the forestry center is in a place where it does have to reinvent itself. It has to find relevance in a changing world. And so what I've been working on is how do we make sure that the Forestry Center really is doing great work that helps our community and, um, and also helps our environment because they're all tied together. So uh, on, on the business operations side of the Forestry Center, what are you doing right and where, where do you want to improve? Right. So the Forestry Center has, it, it's, um, it's fairly independent. We have a lot of earned income. So we, you know, we, we have buildings that we rent. We have a museum that we run that people, you know, pay to come to. Um, we have a small endowment that helps support us. And I think what I'm striving to do is to help make sure we're partnering with the right organizations, the right groups to have as much impact as we possibly can, given our size. I mean, we are, um, I think, trying to cover the world, you know, fr- even though it's appropriate to be in Portland because so many trees are in this region, uh, trying to cover the world as a relatively, you know, a medium-sized nonprofit is ambitious and audacious. And so um, the only way we can do that is with, with good partners and trying to make sure that we're leveraging our assets as well as we possibly can. And you guys also, you have a demonstration forest mm-hmm. in Sherwood, Oregon, Sherwood, Oregon. Does anyone ever refer to it as Shorewood Forest? <laughs> no, no one has. It's actually, we call it Magnus Tree Farm. Um, it was donated by the Magnus family back in 1977. Um, but no, that's, that's actually kind of funny. I haven't ever heard anybody refer to it as the Sherwood Forest. What happens at the demonstration forest? It, uh, we have a couple, there's several miles of trails, and we have an education center out there. Um, people who know about it it's not super well known at this point we've we've utilized a lot for school groups and boy scout groups and they'll do projects um people who utilize it find it to be interesting because it showcases different forest management types in one small area and i think that's helpful because the public doesn't always have an opportunity to see forest management different forest harvest strategies um because you're, you're you know, it's privately, most times it's privately run and it's somewhat dangerous to go and see it actively, you know, forced in the process of being cut. So um, this is a chance for people to actually see it and have a better understanding and appreciation of how forests are being managed today. And, and let's, let's, I want to talk about that <clears throat> a little bit more. How are forests being managed today? I mean, is, is it trending more away from the family farms? Is it trending towards the large corporations? It's becoming, obviously, it's a multinational industry. How are forests being managed in in a in a general sense? So it depends on where you are, but in in Oregon, fifty percent of our forests are owned by the federal government. And since the nineteen nineties, the harvests on federal lands have reduced dramatically, which is where a lot of the fighting came in. You know, the sawmills that existed, you'll hear statistics about how many had to close, and a lot of that because the supply decreased dramatically when the federal forests um, decided to stop har- so many harvests. What that did is shift the emphasis to privately owned timberlands. And um, in many cases, a lot of the vertically integrated timberland companies, which vertically integrated means they 
own the timber, they have the sawmills, and sometimes they even turn it into plywood and other secondary products. Um, those companies often sold off their timber lands to what are called timber investment management companies or organizations, TMOs. And so those are companies that buy and sell land and trade it. Um, they don't necessarily buy it to harvest. They buy it because of the value of the trees that are on it. And eventually somebody buys it and does a harvest on it. So um, the ownership of forest land has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. And that's, you know, the feature of one of our big conferences, Who Will in the Forest, has to do with who actually is owning and managing these forests. Um, you know, it is, to, to try and synthesize it down is hard because there's so many different ways, you know, from a small, you know, individual who owns 10 acres and will once every 30 years when they decide to retire, they'll do a timber harvest to, you know, private owners that own 2 million acres. And, you know, it's just a, it's a huge business and they will manufacture plywood and other lumber from that. Um, so it really varies and there's no one sort of way in which the forests are being managed. How are some of these uh, timber owners finding out about the forestry center and how are you engaging them? I mean, the person that only owns 10 acres seems like they'd be off your radar or you'd be off their radar. You know, people find us, um, especially because the folks who are in this business, they like to congregate together. They, they like to trade best practices. It's like a group of farmers. And they want to understand how each, how, you know, they're each doing their trades, doing their buys, doing their, you know, harvests. Um, and so in some cases, what we're doing is we're trying to help share with the public and with, um, you know, people who are interested what this looks like. Where do the, where do the trees come from that supply the wood that they're using at Home Depot or, you know, for the paper in their books or, or whatever it might be? Um, and so they seem to find us, and we've had a long history with those who are um, part of these companies and with the events that we hold, they'll come to those conferences. Eric Vines is the executive director for the World Forestry Center. How about another song? Uh, how about Carbon Leaf? What about everything? Great. Holiday quiet on these streets Except for some stubborn leaves That didn't fall with the fall And now they clatter in vain Holiday sky, midnight clear Wind is high, hard to steer Old muffler rumbles like An old fighter plane In search of some rest In search of a break From a life of tests Where something's always at stake where something's always so far What about my broken car? What if this summer you did something different? What if you worked with people you admired in a city that inspired you, making something that you were proud of? The Media Institute for Social Change is looking for students like you to be a part of their summer documentary program in Portland, Oregon. As a student, you'll create original audio and video pieces about issues that you care about. You'll meet and learn from media professionals whose work is aimed at social justice. You'll immerse yourself in Portland, a city that will serve as your hands-on media-making laboratory. Sound like your type of summer? Apply today at mediamakingchange.org. Applications for the 2017 Summer Documentary Program are accepted on a rolling basis until Friday, April 7th. Live in Portland and want to support our emerging media producers? Why not host one of our students this summer? Email rose at mediamakingchange.org with questions about becoming a homestay host. This is the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. We are talking to Eric Vines, Executive Director for the World Forestry Center. This maybe isn't fair, but I, I went to one of your recent newsletters, and I took some of the, the questions okay. that you asked. So I'm going to ask them back to you. Sure. Um, one of the questions, how can we best support and maintain a healthy or a future of healthy forest? That's a huge question, obviously, but uh, you asked the question in the right. newsletter. What, what, what are some of the answers that you can provide for that? I think what, one of the things that we have to acknowledge is that we are in a global economy, and decisions that we make in the United States affect other countries. And, you know, I can tell a very simple story that I think illustrates this well. 
um, in Bolivia. There was a group there that were in, they were um, indigenous um, folks who had a tree farm that they managed. They had a sawmill that they, they used to cut the trees in a sustainable way in order to make wood flooring that they largely exported to Europe. In order to try to protect the um, South American forest, the Europeans put a ban on wood imported from South America. And as a result, those indigenous tree farmers no longer had a market for their wood flooring. And so they still had to live, and now the forest had no value to them. And so they clear-cut the whole thing, and they turned it into a cattle plantation because they could still export the beef. And so it's an example of sort of people trying to do the right thing, but not taking the macroeconomic forces into account and creating the exact opposite of what they intended. And so we have to think about all the ways that these different um, economic issues interrelate with each other before we just make snap decisions. And I think that relates to our current political climate right now. We're, we're making decisions that we have not thought through what the consequences of these decisions are. Yeah, and, and I'm going to skip ahead to one of the questions, and which is about ensuring that society invests public dollars at a level that adequately uh, provides responsible man- management. And I think when you're saying society, I mean, I think we're, we're really thinking about federal dollars. And how how is that argument best made to the federal government, uh, especially if, if its uh, concern is more about fighting terrorism or some of those issues? What are some of the compelling arguments for forest management and investment of federal dollars in that? I mean, healthy forests provide us with so much. We don't even realize in some cases, 70% of our water in the United States comes through forests, is filtered through forests. In Portland, Portland, the city of Portland doesn't have to spend $100 million a year filtering its water because we have the Bull Run watershed. And we take that for granted. We don't think about it. And so I think what we have to realize is that we, we underinvest in these resources to our own peril. And, um, and over time, it, it catches up with us. One of the reasons why the Forest Service was established um, by Gifford Pinchot you know, 100 years ago was because he realized that countries go to war over natural resources. And if we wanted to avoid having to fight and go and you know to war over trees. We need to protect the trees that we had, and hold them in reserve until we needed them for the future. And so I think we need to be thinking those, having those long-term thoughts and conversations, because these are really important resources for us. And every, like I said, every single person on the planet depends on healthy forests existing. And if we don't work to make sure that we're managing those forests effectively, um, they may not be there for us in the future. And along the lines of managing uh, the federal forest properly, one of the issues that is increasingly pressing is our forest fires and forest fires management and where the spending comes from that. I mean, there's been a push over the last several years to have that under FEMA um, because the federal dollars available for forest fighting are are dwindling where the number of forest fires are going up. Can you forecast... Uh, give any forecast for for that issue? Yeah, again, another complex issue. The um, a lot of what people are saying about why we're having bigger forest fires. I mean, there's certainly there's the aspect of climate change, the temp- hotter temperatures, more droughts, things like that, um, greater insect infestations, which you can attribute to hotter temperatures around um, our region. But the other thing that has happened is that for decades, we had a policy um, as a society, both the Forest Service and the state forests and and nearly everyone else, to put out fires as soon as they existed. And now we're starting to realize that uh, certain fires, low-level fires that burn out the brush and the undergrowth every 10 or 12 years are helpful to forests. Having not had that for 70 years, we now have overly dense forests, especially on the east side of the state. And so, and there's an effort underway to try to thin those forests to remove some of the undergrowth. And if you look at pictures from the, you know, 1880s, you could drive a truck or drive a, you know, cart through the forest pretty easily. And now there's no way you could do that. There's so many small, you know, bushy trees and um, things in the way. And so we actually do need to introduce a regime of um, regular low-level fires in order to avoid these really explosive, destructive fires that... Um, that 
kill everything. And if you you can you can actually take a cross section of a a tree that has been killed in a recent fire in eastern Oregon, you can see 120 year old tree. You can see every 12 years, 15 years, forest fire, and you see it in the tree rings. And then 70 years of nothing, just normal growth, and then a huge fire, and the tree dies. And so the big effort, I think, is to try to figure out, we have to proactively now go in and thin out those forests in order to fix what we messed up over the last 70 years by preventing those regular smaller fires. And then we need to reintroduce a regime of low-level fires to help you know, keep that brush cleared out. I mean, it, it seems like a very dynamic and exciting field to, to be in. It's, again, it's super interesting and very complicated. I mean, I, I was surprised when I got into this how many factors you have to take into account. And, you know, it's social, it's political, it's environmental. Um, there's human health involved. There's social justice involved. Uh, there's even gender equity involved when you start talking about, you know, in Africa, how far women have to go in order to get fuel for their um, cooking. And it comes from forests. And... and... Talk to me then about, uh, and this is calling a question from your newsletter again, the future of forest managers and management. Is this a attractive field uh, for, for current graduates to go into? How are How is the World Forestry Center helping make this an attractive field to go into? Right. It, you know, so Oregon State University, um, we're right, you know, close to them. They have the the top or one of the top forestry schools in, in, the, in the country, in the world. Um, they, they're graduates. You have a two-year wait. If you're a company wanting to hire a forest engineer, you have to wait two years before you can actually find someone who can to come work for you because they have such a, a backlog of need. Um, so if you're trying to get a job, this is a great place to get a job. It's a very uh, technical, scientific um, business. These folks are scientifically trained. Um, they go through really rigorous um, training. And a lot of the operations in this industry are, um, I mean, it's computer-based. And, um, you know, you, because it's, it is, it's no longer a, um, a manual labor kind of a business anymore. It's very much um, based on equipment and manufacturing. So, you know, I don't know that it's an industry that's growing as quickly as, say, the you know the high tech industry or the computer industry, but it's definitely um, stable, and it's something that we're going to continue to need good people and smart people and engaged people to be part of. And I know what the forest the forestry school at OSU is doing is building a brand new campus with a, a large, significant investment by the state um, and other private donors, because there is so much need to have smart people um, be attracted to this field. Eric Vines, Executive Director for the World Forestry Center, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. One more song. Uh, one more song. Let's see. How about um, Ben Harper's With My Own Two Hands? Great choice. I can change the world with my own two hands, make a better place. With my own two hands, make a kind of place. Oh, with my oh, with my own two hands, with my own, oh, with my own two hands. With my own, with my own two hands, I can make a peace on earth. With my own two hands, and I can clean up the earth. That's all for this week's Nonprofit Hour. We would like to thank our guests Lizzie Martinez from Latino Network and Eric Vines of the World Forestry Center for joining us on the show. The Nonprofit Hour 2017 season is brought to you in part by generous support from Nonprofit Professionals Now, a boutique search service serving Portland's nonprofits. Wholly owned by a nonprofit, NPN specializes in finding nonprofit executive directors and development directors. If your organization or business is interested in underwriting our radio show, please email phil at mediamakingchange.org. The Nonprofit Hour is a production of the Media Institute for Social Change and KXRY Radio, xray.fm. Our host is Phil Bussey, and our producer and editor is Henry Leisha. 
you can follow us on Facebook or via our Twitter handle, at Nonprofit Hour. Archives of past shows can be found on our SoundCloud page. Questions, comments, or ideas about the show can be sent to nph at mediamakingchange.org. Thanks for tuning in to the Nonprofit Hour on KXRY Radio, xray.fm. Join us on Monday mornings at 6 a.m. and Tuesday afternoons at 1. Have a great week. <laughs>